who knows who will be shot next on a movie screen? I mean, you didn't get up that day planning on shooting someone, didn't plan on going to work that day and getting shot by the lead actor in the movie. Who's next to be struck by an oncoming car? Who's the next victim of a violent assault? Wonder who's next in our body that's going to catch the COVID virus? Wonder who might pass away from such or when the next aneurysm is coming. Gone in for surgery lately, Sonia? And realize that it didn't go as expected and trouble comes your way. Don't know if Tom's going to be back to worship with us again. Who knew if that was his last worship service? Is this yours? I mean, who knew that this would be the year when some of our fathers were taken home? It was just last Easter that my father-in-law was sitting out in the parking lot enjoying Easter service with us. Who will not be at your office on Monday? Who will not be at the coffee shop in the month of November? Who will not be found walking in your neighborhood with their dog anymore at the turn of the new year? This all happens every single day as we are faced with the reality of death. Who here believes that there really is Jesus Christ who came in history, who lived that people might have abundant life now, which never ends? That's why we call it eternal life. Who really believes that when death happens, it's forever? And at that point, the die has been completely cast and one will either go to heaven or to hell at that point. Who believes that it really is our duty to be bold evangelists and, and look at our coworkers, look at our neighbors, look at our grandchildren and try to lead them to know Jesus Christ as their Savior? We know this in our head and sometimes we really feel it in our hearts. But then there are times when our emotions really get in the way and we find out that we are weak fearful and trembling. And if that's you, if you're someone who knows death is around the corner for you, for your family and for your neighbors, and you're someone who really believes in Jesus Christ, and you really believe that God uses you to sow seed and can lead people to conversion, what happens when you're also faced with fear, weakness, and much trembling? I would tell you that at that point, you're like your pastor. For he pretends all the time that he's larger than life sometimes, that he's got this love for Jesus that surpasses all fears, and that he sits there and he sings with boldness, I am a child of God and I've got a story that I'm ready to go tell, and then there are other times when I am just such a wimp. But it's not just me. Your Bible is filled with people like this. Church history is filled with people like this. And probably the person on your right and on your left have times when they're supposed to be really bold, but they're, they're characterized by fear, trembling, and much weakness. And you ready for this? 
I'll tell you that I think the Apostle Paul suffers from that right now. And you're going, no, no way. This is the rock of Christianity. I'll prove it to you. And then we can see what God has to say to friends like you, me, and Paul, who are characterized by weakness, fear, and much trembling. Let's now read the text. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They're there because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked with them, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied or consumed with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went next door to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people." And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, old Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. And after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. So we, let me remind you of Paul's travels. He's on his second missionary journey, and he's gone from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea to Athens, now the 50 miles south to Corinth. This is a gorgeous city. I've had the privilege of going on some different cruises, and every now and then you'll see a, a mountain island that has both the blue water and the, the sands there with the mountain backdrop. And that's exactly what you see here in Corinth, as there is a mountain behind it to protect it from weather, to protect it in times of war, but then it has this gorgeous sea. It's a coastal city. It's a famous city. Started in about the 9th century, hit its zenith about the 8th century, got too big for its britches, was then destroyed. But then Julius Caesar 
rebuilt it, made it one of his Roman provincial capitals, and it's an esteemed city. At this point, it dwarfs the city of Athens inside. Estimates go from 200,000 on up on how many citizens were there at that time. It is a stately city, and it's an economic boomtown. Why? Because there's basically travel that can go by land, east to west, but there's also travel that can go by sea, north to south. Now, there's a, there's a canal there now that has actually been constructed, and some of you may have sailed through it before. Um, I'm willing to go if you want to send me so that I can make sure of the uh, historical accuracy of my sermons. But in this day, because it was so treacherous to go around the Cape, they often found it worthy enough to park a boat on one port, either carry the contents or if the boat's not too large to actually haul the boat across the three and a half mile stretch of land to the other port city. So it's basically a thriving metropolis with two ports with traffic going north, south, east and west. What a boom town it is. It's known for its entertainment. The Isthmian Games were held there every two years. Its architectural style, we've heard of Corinthian columns. For those of you who want to date yourself, you remember of that fine Corinthian leather that used to be mentioned in some of those uh, Chrysler commercials. A lot of disposable income there and lots and lots of gods, idols, and temples. Especially Aphrodite's temple on top of the mountain. And it's a place of incredible debauchery or hedonism. Maybe if you were to think of going to Amsterdam, that kind of brings up thoughts in your mind. Or going with the fellas to Vegas. Normally you're not thinking of a Bible conference. Here you go to Corinth, and it's a cesspool of sin. And you get to do your sin in the name of God. Because every night, as the story goes, Thousands of prostitutes would come down from the city to meet the seafarers, the merchants, the soldiers, the salesmen, and would offer you the ability to have relations with them as you worship God. So there was this reputation. You know how we say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? When you talked about to Corinthianize, they all knew what that meant. That was a synonym. That was slang for living it up partying hard, things you don't go home to tell your wife about. And this is where Paul finds himself. What does he do when he's in Corinth? He's faithful. He does what he does everywhere. He finds a place to live, finds a place to work, and goes to minister. Who's he going to live with? His host, Priscilla and Aquila, or Aquila and Priscilla. These are Jews who come from Italy. Jews who come from Rome, Jews that are Christians but have then been booted out because there was an emperor who booted out all the Jews. Uh, if you read the historical sources, it's because of this guy named Crestus. And the question is, is Crestus Christus? The guy who wrote about that may have gotten the spelling mixed up. And so there was something going on in Rome. Either they were following some human rebel named Crestus or in the synagogues, the battles between the believing Jews and the unbelieving Jews were, were causing such a disruption with the Pax Romana that basically they said, we don't understand you people, just get out, all of you. 
So Aquila and Priscilla are booted. They make their new residence in Corinth, and there Paul meets them. He's glad to find some Christians, and he now stays with them and lives with them. They are co-ministers. You see them both, and they're almost always printed, presented together. You see them both opening up their homes. You see them both leading in house churches. You see them both teaching. You see them both, and I'm, you, have to, if you, you can go look at it if you want to. You see them both correcting false preachers. You see them both ministering here, there, and everywhere. You see them both mentioned in lots of Paul's letters. And you also see that when you see their names listed together, that it's more often Priscilla and Aquila than it is Aquila and Priscilla. What am I trying to say? Luke, who's made a big deal of saying Barnabas and Paul, until the point that he started saying Paul and Barnabas, is emphasizing that Priscilla is every bit as important in the mutual ministry of Aquila and Priscilla as is Aquila. This is not some godly man with his tag-along wife. This is a ministerial team of a godly man and a godly woman using their spiritual gifts for the church. They're co-ministers, but they're also co-workers. They all have the same trade. In every Jewish household, it was criminal if you as a father didn't pass along some way to work and provide an income to your son. So Jesus learns to be a carpenter. Simon, Peter, Andrew, what do they learn to be? Fishermen. If you're Judas's son, what did you learn to be? An IRS agent. Okay, just joking. Paul's parents taught him the trade of tent making, which has something to do with either using the cloth of animals, using the skins or the hides of animals, and somehow putting them together as a saddler, a leather worker, a seamstress, not a seamstress, what's a seamster? I don't know, seamstress? I should have looked that up before I started talking. This idea, a sewer, how about we'll just say, Tony, a tailor. Thank you for helping me. Put that together, and that's what Paul did with his hands. And the interesting thing is that Paul, almost everywhere he goes, is what you call a bivocational minister. It would be like me selling cars all week long and then coming here and ministering. And Paul makes a big deal of this. Now, let's put these pieces together. Paul is more than willing to take a collection and send it to hurting people. And Paul will teach you that a laborer is worthy of his hire, that what you do by helping provide a salary for me is okay, it's acceptable. But Paul just doesn't take that option for himself. Paul goes around and he worships by working six days a week, and he worships by preaching in the synagogues every single Sabbath. And that's what he does until the Lord sends him some encouragement. Paul is there preaching. Paul is there teaching. He's sowing on, what is that? That would be Sunday through Friday. He's then preaching on Saturday, the Sabbath, sowing six days a week, preaching one day a week. I'm sure he's evangelizing while he's doing his business to the glory of God. He sees no difference between his vocational service out there in the shop and his vocational service in the synagogue. Everything he does is for the glory of God. He doesn't appreciate people who are lazy, people who expect they're supposed to just get some kind of an income because they, they show up and do some service with God. But God sends him support, and here comes Timothy and Silas. Oh, that must have been a, a, 
a lift to his soul. And they come with them bringing good news. Thessalonica is going well. The brothers and the sisters, they're moving and shaking for Christ. So Paul is glad and he writes them a couple letters. You can read those in your Bible too. But they come with a gift. So this is interesting. It's as if Paul says, I won't charge you for me ministering to you because I don't want there to be ulterior motives. I don't want to be a burden to you. I'm just here to serve you. How about that? But Paul will take money from somewhere else sent his way. And at this point, if you look in the Greek text, you see that he devotes himself wholly now to preaching the word. So Paul now no longer spends his six days a week working in the tent ministry now. At this point in Corinth, he is now a full-time, he's not a bivocational minister. He starts serving Christ. He has a, a privilege and a responsibility because he doesn't have to provide for his own income anymore. So you can put those pieces together and you see this around the world today. It is very, very legitimate for ministers to say, I'm going to go work a regular job and then I'm going to teach. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you, that's what your ruling elders here do. If you're a ruling elder, would you raise your hand? Please look around. These men have other jobs and they serve Christ as ministers out there. And then they come here and they also serve Christ as ministers here. And then there are some in this room right here. There are three of us who get full-time salaries. And that would be Scott and Gordon and Joe. Have I missed anybody? I don't think so. We have maybe a, a, a tighter responsibility to you. Because for some reason you've blessed us with the opportunity to make our living serving you. So therefore, we better be the hardest working people in the church. Well, this is Paul. He's encouraged. And he goes about business as usual, preaching. And what happens when he preaches? Souls are saved. And what happens when souls are saved? People get mad. And what happens when people get mad? Opposition, resentment, slander. Paul's had enough. Paul looks at his Jewish friends, and with this dramatic gesture, he shakes the dust off of his toga. And he says, I'm done. You're guilty. You've heard. Your blood's on your shoulders. I'm not going to cast my pearls before swine any longer. I'm going to the Gentiles. And that's what Paul does. Paul is faithful. But then we see Paul's trembling. Do you see these two verses here? Some of you may have wondered, hey, was I overstepping my bounds when I said Paul was filled with weakness, fear, and much trembling? Because it didn't say that in the Acts text, did it? But when Paul is writing to his Corinthian friends later, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That's Paul's inspired testimony, his autobiographical testimony to the Corinthians. Another letter to Corinthians. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired even of life itself. Ha! 
That doesn't sound very spirit-filled, Paul. Despairing of life itself. Where's the joy of the Lord, Paul? I suppose you're supposed to rejoice in the Lord always. And aren't you supposed to be blessed, you who are persecuted? Paul presents himself as one in weakness, in fear, with much trembling, utterly burdened, beyond strength, and despairing of life. He is no superman. Sure, he is an apostle. Sure, he has the Holy Spirit living inside him. But you and I have the Holy Spirit living inside of us as well. And don't we struggle with fear, weakness, and much trembling? Why? <laughs> I think Paul has been here before. It's like Bill Murray again in Groundhog Day. Over and over and over again, I've seen how this plays out. I just made a bunch of people upset in the synagogue. <laughs> I'm getting ready to be dragged before a court. The court's getting ready to look the other way. I'm getting ready to be beaten again. Then I'm going to get thrown in prison again. Then I'm going to get the stocks put on my feet again. And maybe they're going to stone me and kill me and leave me for dead again. And then I'm going to get back up and go back in and preach again. And we're just going to go through this over and over. I'm no rookie. I've been down this road before. And I think he just realizes uh, this hurts. He's physically exhausted. Hundreds of miles he has traveled, physically broken. How many beatings can you take without it leaving scars and, and effects on your body? Culturally troubled, emotionally spent. He struggles with fear. He struggles with self-love. He struggles with peer pressure, with rejection, with pain, with materialism, hedonism, faithlessness, and doubt, and perseverance. R. Kent Hughes says, it's like a boxer after the fifth round who hears ding, ding. <laughs> you know what the next three minutes of your life are getting ready to look like. And Paul, I think, is broken. He's struggling. He's like you and I. It's at this point that we see Paul's temptation. Has anyone run a marathon? I haven't. Sometimes I want to go buy one of those stickers to put on my car that makes me look like I'm running a marathon. <laughs> my favorite sticker is that one that says 0.0. <laughs> but my understanding is at the 20-mile mark, what do you do? You're tempted to quit because you hit the wall. There's an effect on your body which causes it almost to shut down that you just have to muscle through. I think Paul's hitting the wall. Thomas Cramner hit the wall, an archbishop in England who was threatened to the point of his life and his family's life that if he didn't recant and come back to the Roman Catholic faith that he would be persecuted. He hit the wall and turned back. That's not the end of the story. He finally recanted of his recantation. We've talked about that before, how he put the hand that recanted and wrote the recantation into the fire to let it burn first. I think Moses hit the wall. 
Remember we sang that song, you split the sea so we could walk right through it. But Moses and the Israelites had some serious questions they were throwing God's way when they were hemmed in with the sea before them and Pharaoh's army is coming behind. And then Moses over and over again as the children of Israel proved to be idolatrous and proved to grumble and complain over and over again. He was found hitting the wall, doubting what in the world's going on, Lord. Elijah hit the wall. It doesn't say a fetal position in the scripture, but he was found in a depressed mode in the mountains. John the Baptist hit the wall. The one who proclaimed, there's the Lamb of God, is the one who in prison one day is sending his disciples to Jesus to ask the question, Lord, are you even the Lord? Are you really the one? All the disciples hit the wall because they all ran in fear. Not one of them was like, two more days, he's rising from the grave. They all disbelieved. David hit the wall. Read his Psalms. Jesus hit the wall in the Garden of Gethsemane, so torn and broken that he prays, Lord, will you take this cup from me? John Mark hit the wall. Ah, this is interesting. John Mark hit the wall and went home. I'm not doing this missionary ministry any longer. In 2017 and 18, I hit a wall. I was driving to Atlanta to interview with corporate Chick-fil-A. I was done being a pastor. I was meeting at City Range with a guy, talking about working for Ryan Holmes was done being a pastor. Thought maybe Southside Christian School was going to be the place where the Lord would have me go to work. I was done being a pastor. Paul has hit a wall, and he has a temptation now. Will he be silent? Will he stop speaking? Will he slow down, hunker down, or maybe even quit? That's when we see Paul's encouragement. The Lord has shown up in a vision on several times to meet with Paul. And on this point, it looks like the Lord Jesus Christ himself showed himself again. What an encouragement this must have been. And you see the command. Do not be silent. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Preach on, evangelize on, worship on, but don't stop. Then we see his promise. Three Ps. I will be with you. That's the Great Commission. Go make disciples, and wherever you go, I will be with you. Presence. Protection. Paul, for a while here in Corinth, you're not going to be hurt. No one can touch you. Isn't that good to know that if God allows suffering to come your way, it's because He's allowed suffering to come your way, and that no suffering can come your way unless the sovereign God allows it? So you're not left to chance in any way. What can the evil man do to me? Nothing unless the sovereign God of the universe allows him to come my way. And then finally, people. I love this one. Paul, I have many people here. I got family members here. I know their names. I've chosen them before the beginning of the earth. They don't even know they're my people yet. But Paul, we have work to do. There are many people in this city that we're going to go grab together, you and I. 
At this point, we see the combination for those of you who slander us and say, you predestinarians don't believe in evangelism and missions. No, it fuels our evangelism and missions. This is an encouragement to him. Paul, you got brothers and sisters. I got sons and daughters. We got work to do. Get up. Let's go. And at this point, Paul does. He gets up and he goes. And for 18 months, what does he do? He works. He displays human sovereignty as he calls men with wills to make decisions that they might be included in the family of God. Because in that city, God said, I have people. And then we see a weird story at the end where God even uses wicked governmental figures to help foster his purposes in the church. Paul is dragged before this new Gallio, who's the new proconsul. The Jews say he's violating the law. There's some confusion as to whether they're referring to the law of Rome or the law of Moses. But bottom line, Gallio, when Paul was about to speak, didn't even let Paul address them. He basically took the case, said it's without merit, threw it out. And it wasn't because Gallio's righteous. Because when they decided they could not hurt Paul, what did they do? It says the people, they, they turn their attention to the Sosthenes and they end up beating him within an inch of his life. While Gallio does what? Nothing. So let me get this right. Gallio helped Paul, but didn't help Sosthenes. And he sat by and watched this innocent man get beaten. Why? The only answer is God providentially saved Paul, but by Gallio throwing this out of court, this allowed 10 to 12 years of precedence to be set in the legal establishment. Because a Roman magistrate had now declared that you don't get to persecute Christians as part of your Jewish sect, the Jews couldn't touch Paul for the next 10 to 12 years, and it wouldn't be until Rome turned their attention at Christianity that persecution came back again. God is sovereign over every president the United States has ever had or will, every legislator, every judge. God is the one who encourages with his presence, with his protection, with his people, and with his providence. And Paul carries on. So we end by asking three questions and we're done. First, what could cause us to encounter weakness, fear, and trembling? You ready? Oh, governmental oppression. There is no doubt that our government can become so oppressive someday that it really does put the, put the, put the heat on us to be silent. Will we be silent when that day happens? I'm scared to answer it because I think I'm too silent and the day hasn't happened. I don't need governmental pressure to encourage me to be silent when I'm out there in the world because my culture and I put that own pressure on myself to be silent. And if I'm not willing to speak now while I still have governmental liberty, constitutional liberty, what makes me think the right that I'm going to be like those faithful Chinese or Russian friends behind the Iron Curtains or in Iraq today in that 1040 window who are able to share boldly their faith? But what causes us to encounter such weakness? It's the temptation of the devil. Cultural pressure, fleshly pressure, the self-love that I have, the family love that I have. I don't want to see my family get hurt. 
idolatry, hedonism, materialism, peer pressure, doubt. The devil loves to whisper to us, you're wasting your time. America's changed so much that the days of opportunity have gone. Oh, or maybe the other lie. God predestines anyone coming into the kingdom, so why go evangelize? Maybe he causes you to doubt, ah, there's really not a hell. Or how often can you look foolish? Don't you want to follow the science? And Paul didn't like being called the gutter pecker last week by Athenians. He doesn't like being ridiculed by the Corinthians. We don't like being ridiculed by those who think they're bright. But what says the Lord? You are not to fear. 365 times in the scriptures, you're not to fear. You can make a difference, the Lord says. Through your ministry, people who pass away really can be brought from death into life. Tom Casey, if he got the chance, would tell you his story of his coming to know Jesus Christ by a vacuum cleaner salesman. You're most joyful when you're serving me. The Lord would say, you can't be hurt unless I allow it. The Lord would tell us you can't be safe unless I allow it. The Lord would say, quit trying to figure out politics. You can't figure out what I'm doing behind the scenes. The Lord would say, I have my eye on you. I will be with you. I will strengthen and help you and cause you to stand. I'll uphold you by my omnipotent hand. I'll tell you what to say when you need to say it. I'll never leave you or forsake you. And blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name. So the devil tells us one thing. The world tells us one thing. Our flesh tells us one thing. But the Lord tells us another. Which leads us to what say you and me. I've been faced with the reality of death this weekend. And I want to see my friends, neighbors, and family come to know Jesus Christ. So I'm repenting. And I'm standing before my God and I'm saying, I don't want to be silent. If you'll help me, I will not shut up and I will be less cautious. I will not explain away the opportunity to evangelize because I'm trying to practice some lifestyle evangelism. I won't only tell of you. I will boast of you. I beg for your help, Lord. Let my life bring glory to you. Let our church bring glory to you. Let everything we do be an offering and a sacrifice to you. Can, can my heart be your heart? Or maybe better said, can your heart be my heart? Can your dreams be my dreams, God? Can your will be my will? Can I pant for what you pant for? Can every breath I make be for your sake, Lord? Can I share the gospel and quit being silent? 
Can my life bring glory to you, Lord? And it glorifies you when people are removed from the kingdom of hell into the kingdom of His Son, when they're no longer slaves anymore.